78% of primary care docs work for the bigs. What happens when independent docs capitulate, forced into big systems, insurers, and private equity? Well, know this, listener, it's more akin to a shotgun wedding than a champagne-toasted celebration. This is not a victory for most doctors. Costs, number one, are generated to double and maybe more, for sure. And pressure is brought to refer to the most pricey, if not better, places of service. And that means imaging, labs, surgery, and primary care owned through these big systems. Through an outdated volume-centric practice called RVUs, relative value units. This also hikes the devil's sister of burnout, which is two out of three PCPs, and medical errors, which is the number three cause of death after heart and cancer. In fact, the CDC says 11 people die every hour due to hospital-acquired infections. So this, of course, too increases with more hospital referrals. And there's more dumb tests and unnecessary procedures. A dumb test is ordered every 15 seconds for a lot of different reasons. And outcomes are certainly not improved. So this demolition of the independent docs was financed by brilliant lobbying, hat tip American Hospital Association, which helped big systems double strategic reserves during the pandemic to $175 billion, which six quarters later of reporting, we know they never needed. So how is this all fixed? Well, I love Dr. Keith Smith's quote, don't ask Congress to solve the caper when they drove the getaway car. So if not our Congress, how are we gonna fix this? Well, we have wealth care and poor care in America, sadly. The majority are in poor care. This buyout of independence does nothing to reverse this trend and to help this ever-growing gap. It only adds cost to us, higher deductibles for employees, and more profits for the bigs. Nobody wins but the bigs. But we all win with independent docs, especially if direct contracting because they lower costs. They refer less to unnecessary tests and downstream care and in direct contracting have 40 to 60% lower stays and visits to hospitals and the same for ER. Overall costs drop for self-insured employers between 20 and 60% in direct contracting with independent docs and surgery centers, imaging labs and pharmacies. So I live in a future where everybody wins today and today's guest completely gets that. John Collier, who is the CEO of the only primary care provider recognized by the Validation Institute for demonstrating significant cost savings to its clients and is a direct contractor with employers. In short, this Validation Institute verifies your marketing and savings claims. It's kind of a big deal. Proactive MD is based in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And uh, John has led direct to employer contracting for one of the largest hospitals in his region. And before joining Proactive MD, which has 30 clinics, John was the CEO of another South Carolina-based direct primary care provider. John, welcome to the show. Good morning. Um, so do you have any comments before we get started? So real quick, so we are um, actually in Greenville, based in Greenville, South Carolina, a suburb of, um, of Spartanburg. And then we are approaching nearly 100 um, clinics, not, um, not 30. So just, just under 100 with the implementations that we have. Um, well, that's great. Okay. Well, I, I let off with um, outcomes for employers jump. So let's talk about that first, maybe. Perfect. What, when you're sitting down with an employer for the first time or a prospective employer, what are you touting as your outcomes for your model? You know, first and foremost, you know, when we, when we sit down with an employer, it's, it's really important, you know, that the conversation's personal because we're having a conversation about their greatest asset, their people. 
So we start with that. We start with um, the humbling realization that we could have the opportunity to take care of their greatest asset and that their greatest asset, their people, that's someone's husband, wife, son, daughter, family member. And so every you know, interaction that we have um, with employers or patients, we really want to constantly keep in mind that these are real people. So when we, when we are looking at these outcomes and we're striving for these best-in-class outcomes, we keep the patient at the center and we keep um, those real people at the center. But when, when we get into the, to the data, we spend a lot of time just really getting to understand their population and knowing that while certainly every population has some similarities, every population is different. And so we get the the privilege of working with public sector groups or private sector groups, rural groups, metro groups, large, small employers, and everyone has a slightly different business case. And so we spend time looking at it from a population health perspective, really stratifying the risk of the population and, and going into areas of that we know we can impact. And so we're looking at on the outpatient side, the inpatient side, emergency room visits, pharmacy, specialty, and, um, and, and we dive and dive into the numbers on, on those areas. Okay. So let's just talk about, I guess, metros, since that's probably going to be your biggest population. Um, what are your outcomes for metro? So um, we did a peer-reviewed um, case study, in, in, and this was in a metro area. And um, we were able to decrease the, their outpatient PMPM pricing by 26%. We were able to decrease inpatient PMPM by 18%, decrease emergency room visits, um, their, that PMPM spend by 25%, and then from a pharmacy reduction, take it down by 17%. Terrific. Okay, that's, that's going to get their attention there. Um, I'm sure going to have a second discussion with you when you throw those numbers out. And then what is your care stack? A lot of folks that are scaling in this space are offering mental health, some are even off offering occupational health. What is your care stack look like right now besides primary care and urgent care? That's a great question, Ron. And um, at PractiveMD, we want to be that we want to be able to practice full scope population health. And so the core care stack does start with the power of primary care. And so everything we do is built on the cornerstone of primary care. And, and that's your primary care physician, and then they have a nurse that works alongside of them. But something that's unique to our model is every single clinic that we launch or that we we start with, the, the primary care physician also has a sidekick or kind of a Batman Robin approach with, with a modality called a patient advocate. And these patient advocates are licensed clinical social workers, and they do phenomenal work working right alongside that care team from a, from a mental health, behavioral health perspective, social determinants, from an engagement perspective, really also diving in, understanding a benefits plan, being kind of that concierge of benefits, and then taking a step back, looking at other clinical integrations. And so many times we do see that in an employer setting, there's certainly, we, we need to offer occupational health services, and, and we do that on, on, a, on a regular basis. Um, firefighter physicals, police physicals, pre-employment, um, fit for duty type of, type of um, occupational health, also, you know, treat and triage on the workers' comp side, keeping those two areas, primary care and workers' comp, very separate. We also will add in musculoskeletal components, so having on-site physical therapy if and when needed, and also even full pharmacy in, in, appropriate, um, in the appropriate setting when it, when it makes sense. Constantly looking at the data, looking at the population, and again, that unique business case for that 
individual employer. Okay. And do you charge one set pricing or is it a different price for different care stacks? So we, we try to, um, so as you can imagine, if it's a, if it's a much more robust care stack, price will increase, but, um, but we will, we charge what we you would call a comprehensive fixed fee or a PMPM pricing. And, um, and so we try to keep it one set pricing across the board. And so, um, but for, for your, for your standard care, care stack, it's going to look the same regardless. And, and then, and then that grows with, you know, adding other modalities. So what is, let's talk about the range. What does it start at and what does it, what will it ratchet up to with the full care stack? Yeah. So that's a great question. So uh, our, our retail pricing, if, if a consumer was going to come into to a ProactiveMD setting, it's $89 per member per month. And, and that is full scope. That's around the clock access to the physician. That's virtual care, home visit, hospital visits, behavioral mental health support, pharmacy, um, patient advocacy. Um, and But that also with economies of scale on the employer side will come down to an average of about $60, $55, $60 per member per month. Okay, so per member would be a husband and a wife. What if there's a family of three more kids? Is that uh, priced any differently? That's the adult pricing and then pediatric pricing goes down to 25 to a cap of a family of four children. So it would cap there and then the price would hold steady. And then uh, let's talk about how you handle your chronic care because that's going to be a giant source of savings for employers if you can help them either manage or even reverse either hypertension or diabetes or some of these other lifestyle diseases. Right. Absolutely. So as, as you can imagine, and I'm, I know that you've talked to many, many primary care physicians, um, Ron, chronic, chronic illness is the bread and butter for, for primary care. And, and, you know, everything we do, again, going back to what, I was, what we were talking about earlier, everything we do is about this, this patient is a, is a family member. This is a real person and we want to build a relationship with them. And if we can build a relationship and a deep level of trust, we know that we can help steer and um, and help manage their chronic illness and the way that they transact with healthcare significantly differently. And so we spend a lot of time looking at the data, that, that's claims data that we have access to, that's clinical data, and that's aggregating the two together, and then building a, a plan. And, the, and each individualized proactive MD care team is looking at, at their population on a week in week out basis and say, okay, Mr. Smith hasn't been in in several weeks. We know that when we stratify the risk of the population, he's a high risk individual. He has three chronic disease types. We need to get him in. And so the physician, the patient advocate, the nurse, they're coming up with, with, with a care plan to, to say, hey, let's get him in for care. Let's make sure we're engaging him. And then nationally, all of our physicians and, and clinicians are talking on a weekly basis, sharing best practices, and, um, and working very closely with that. But going back to the trust side of things, everything we do is built on relationship, it's built on trust, and it's built on that engagement. And so, unfortunately, sometimes you see in these on-site clinics, um, you don't see as high of engagement as, as you would like. And so we know for the model to work, you've got to engage the population, not just as a nice supplement to primary care, but as a full replacement. We want to be their medical home. We want to see these individuals often. I'm going to imagine that a lot of the chronic patients are going to actually be seeing, um, have a care plan in place for the first time in their lives because they had high deductible plans with the previous regime and they weren't able to really afford to go see the doctor or even maybe even afford the medications. Um, are you finding that some people are just incredibly grateful to finally have 
no copays, no deductibles, and and full access. Yeah, well, they are. I mean, and so when you talk to our our employer partners and they take um, pull after pull after pull, um, having an on-site or near-site direct primary care solution is their number one benefit every, every single time. And so um, these these employees and their families are besides themselves. They're so they're so happy, and um, and really that's another reason why you know also understanding the social determinants of you know what's going on in the home front is so important. You know we have found in our patient advocates as as they've worked to in, to engage a population. Oftentimes you think okay this is an employed population. They're insured. They have they they have access to nice benefits, you know, sometimes very rich benefits, they should be good to go. But when you can build that relationship, when you can focus on some of the social determinants, you know, things that are going on in the home front that could be causing obstacles to care, you're, we're able to hit that head on as well. I'll tell you a, a, a quick story. The, the, I, I, can't, I can't stress enough how important engagement is. And so again, on a week in, a week out basis, our patient advocates and our physicians are working to engage their populations. And so we had a patient who was chronically ill, um, they had been in for care once, but then after that, subsequently kept missing their appointments. And so that, you know, that for, for the Proactum D-Way, because we care so much, we, we wanted to say, okay, what's going on? Why, why does this patient keep missing her, her appointments? And we, we wanted to be there for her. And so the patient advocate really started to investigate. Well, we found out that this patient was actually living in her car at their employer site. And, 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 and had two children with her. And so when we met with her, she said, you know, I'm just worried about feeding my kids. I'm not worried about coming into a doctor's appointment for myself. And so we were able to spend time, work, work out um, some things with, 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 with these patient advocates being licensed clinical social workers. They have an abundance of resources. We were, we were able to get housing. We were able to get um, food and able to secure that side of that patient's needs. And now, that trust that we've built, she doesn't miss appointments. We have, we were taking good care of the kids and, um, and everyone is doing great clinically, but also mentally and physically on the other side of it as well. That's a great story. Um, so engaging the employee is such a tricky thing because I'm going to assume a third of the employees or some portion of the employees are just, I'm healthy, leave me alone. I'll call you when I need you for some urgent issue. Um, and maybe some other seg segment is going to say, I know I'm borderline diabetic. I'm starting to feel neuropathy in my legs, but I'm not scared yet. So I'm not going to bother you or I'm not going to have you bother me until I know I need you, or I'm not going to work on that smoke cessation I know I need to do. Um, and then again, there's the population we just talked about, which is I am so glad to finally have access that costs me nothing. I can go see a doctor. How do you get that middle group? I'm going to call them the yellow lighters versus the green lighters or the red lighters. How do you get those yellow lighters into the clinic or engage them over the phone or just have a history, do a patient history? Yeah. And then Ron, and you add to, to the complexity of that, you add, you, you might have a clinic on site or near site and, and it's associated with the, that employer, those yellow lighters and all of them. Sometimes there's this, there's this thought, oh boy, is my, is my employer sp um, spying on me? And so you have to even overcome those complexities. And so again, relationship, relationship, relationship. And so the way we do that is before we ever start, we put our patient advocate on site 60 days, 30, 60 days ahead of time, really getting to know the population. We've stratified the risk of, of this population. We have risk stratified engagement, and we're, we're looking to 
go after those yellow letters, even in, in, in beyond, but even, even the healthy people. I mean, the reason why our name is Proactive MD is because so much of healthcare is reactive. And so we want to change the thought of, of, of that and, and, and make healthcare more of a, a, a proactive relationship. But it, it, I can't stress enough about getting on site and, and meeting patients where they're at. So does that, if they're working in a factory, that's walking, that's walking the assembly line. If, if they're working in a municipality, that means showing up at the firehouses, the police offices, city hall. If they're, if they're a school district, that's, that's doing events to get to know the teachers, holding up open houses and building that relationship. And then aside from that, working very, very closely with the employer and their trusted advisor, their benefits consultant, their broker to say, let's also build care um, build a plan design that's going to incentivize the, the right care and it's going to um, help steer patients into our setting. So it's a full scope approach and we, and we do that um, collectively together as a team. Yeah, that's great. John, do you have any, um, there is a chicken factory, chicken plant in East Texas that had no work stoppage during COVID because they had on-site care. Um, so doctors constantly monitoring their foreheads, making sure someone that wasn't feeling right got off the line quickly and uh, was treated quickly. Um, do you have any evidence that during the, the pandemic that that having doctors on site was a boon to the production line and to the manufacturing? Absolutely. And we are actually working on a number of case studies there as well. And I can proudly say that not one of our health centers closed down during the pandemic. And, and you know, that highlighted more than ever the, the need, not just for the you know, onsite clinic, but primary care in general. And, and so we were able to partner with, with our, even several of our chicken factories and, and um, you know, work with them and, and all of our partners to do contact tracing. You know, we built a, a software that, that looked at how do we, how do we space people appropriately? Um, how do we make sure that that there's enough sanitation going on, that there's enough PPE going on, that there's enough education. And then those that are high risk that we are constantly checking on them. And so the physicians and the patient advocates calling on a multi, multi times a week, checking in on those high risk individuals to making sure they're okay. And then if we had any of our patients that, that were um, isolated, maybe they were diagnosed with COVID and they, then they had to be in quarantine for two plus weeks, making sure that they're doing okay on the home front, doing you know, fully gowned PPE visits with the patient advocate and, and the physician, bringing groceries to the house, making sure that that family's okay. Because again, that just solidifies that trust and that relationship. And, and you know, you know, primary care must go on. So what states are you in besides South Carolina right now? We are saturated throughout the Southeast. So North Carolina, South Carolina, um, Georgia, Florida, um, Kentucky, Tennessee, and then all throughout the Midwest as well. Um, and we are growing into the West, Western regions as well, launching in New Mexico, Colorado, Iowa, um, kind of shotgunned throughout the whole country. Okay. So the, the, the game plan obviously is to cover the 48 states, maybe even 50 states uh, in time. That's the plan. You know, I think that, you know, it's, it's to bring this level of care to um, all over the country. And how many uh, providers do you have currently? And then is your model to deal with a, a doctor, an MDDO, or do you go with a nurse practitioner PA model? Or how, how, is, how does that break out, work out? So just over 100 providers. And um, we, are, we are primarily a physician-based model, but we do um, have, a, um, we have several 
nurse practitioners and PAs that take great care working, you know, very closely alongside our, our physicians. Okay. And then how many employees, or I should say members, do you have at this time? So we are approaching 100,000. Okay, great. Um, so the goal is to obviously, when is to get to scale as quickly as you can, as makes sense. And I guess a lot of employers, because they're based in these uh, southeastern states, are going to want you in other states where they have employees in, in other facilities, right? Correct. That happens a lot. Yeah. So it's our, very organic. Okay, that's wonderful. Um, so let's talk about the long-term plan. What do you see this looking like in, say, three to five years uh, in terms of scale? Yeah. So, Ron, something you see um, all over our website and um, something even it's a little phrase that we trademark and it's true to our, our, cult, our culture and our philosophy is care beyond the walls. And so you've heard me for the last several minutes talk about the power of primary care and what all the great things we can do in a primary care setting. But we know that primary care does not stop in the four walls of that um, setting. And so what you're going to see, what you continue to see us do is taking the power of primary care and reaching into the care continuum. And so that means building direct contracts, building relationships with specialists, surgery centers, um, hospitals. We are entering into um, dozens of hospital relationships across the country and really making sure that we can ensure that our patients, these moms, dads, sons, daughters, husbands, and wives, that we have the awesome responsibility to take care of, that they get the right care at the right time in the right place and then for that right cost. And so we're constantly looking at quality. We're constantly looking at outcomes uh, of these community specialists or national specialists, national hospitals to say, let's make sure that if we are going to do referral, it's going to be in the right place, in the right setting. And then opening up communication. And so um, what, you, what you're going to continue seeing us develop is opening up communication between throughout that whole care continuum, giving primary care a voice and, and letting primary care kind of be the vehicle to handhold that patient to the oncologist if they need that, to the surgeon, to the cardiologist. And then also training and, and building close enough relationships with the, the, the specialists that if they, if they should be seen in a primary care setting, what we'll do is called reverse referrals. And so if they're seeing a cardiologist for hypertension, well, we can do that at the primary care level. We'll, we'll bring them back into the primary care setting and then if and when they need a cardiological procedure, then we'll get them to the cardiologist, that right cardiologist that we vetted from an outcomes perspective. And so you're gonna to continue to see that evolution and that evolve in, in the power of primary care expand into the care continuum. So do you see it as your role, let's say it's time for labor and delivery, which I'm sure happens a lot, and obviously pre PCPs aren't gonna handle that. It's now time to make that handoff and they maybe have their ob already. Um, do you do anything to make sure that they're not uh, adding complications at the surgery, uh, you know, that they're not creating codes and upcoding for COVID and all kinds of ridiculous games that hospitals play? How, do you do y'all take charge of that role or is that the TPA's role to make sure that happens? So I say it's collective. So we work, we work very closely with that and we, and we train. So if, if we've built a direct contract with, with the hospital, then it's definitely our role. And so we are going to be seen as that chief medical officer. And if we see these upcodes, we're going to work with the employer's TPA and, and claims are going to get denied. We also, to work with our, with our patients, if you get an EOB, if you get something that doesn't look right, bring it back in, let the patient advocate go through your bill with you. And, and you know, just two weeks ago, we had a patient come in 
who had a colonoscopy and um, he said, no, something doesn't look right about this bill. And sure enough, it, it wasn't correct. And so we said, we got this, we'll handle it for you. Our patient advocate and physician um, worked collectively together and were able to um, get a reimbursement for that, for that patient. You know, it's interesting. I think of licensed clinical social workers as being therapists, but I don't think of them as adjudicating claims and working over uh, the billing, but it sounds like you've got some specialty training in there in your, in each of those clinics. Yeah. So think about these licensed clinical social workers in, 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 in a normal setting. So they're, they're trained in the, in the therapy and then the behavior, on the behavioral health side. But they also, you know, the ones in our setting have worked in, in hospital settings. And so, you know, they've worked on maybe the busiest hospital floor dealing with uninsured, dealing with um, CMS, Medicaid. And, and so when you can put them in a setting where they can just become a master at one plan design, and they're used to looking at resources for patients who, don't, who have very little resources, but you would put them in an employer setting where they have one commercial insurance and they can really become a master and fully ingrained in that, in, in that plan and those benefits, they, they, they can work magic. I'm imagining your employers love this, uh, that you're able to bring those costs down as well. Um, so let's talk about pharmacy. In Texas, we are not allowed to have, um, you know, formularies in the clinic, but I guess you can in some of these Southern states and Southern Southeastern states. Um, so how does the, how does buying meds work? Do they get them at your, well, just explain how that works. What's that, how's that process work? So you can bring the prying, pricing down from the traditional PBM pricing. Right. So most of our, most of our settings, we have an on-site dispensary. So, so that's about, 200 or so generic pharmaceuticals um, where you, where you can, um, the, the physician and the, and the nurse can dispense right there to the patient. Compliance goes way up. So from that diabetic, we can hand them their metformin right there. But, but there are certain settings that if, if the volume's high enough, if they have multiple thousands of, of members, it may make sense to do a full pharmacy. And in, in that setting, we will build out a full retail pharmacy, have a staff, a pharmacist, and, um, and in some attributes become almost a replacement for their PBM. And that's, an, that's a, an amazing environment when you can get the physician, the patient advocate and the pharmacist working kind of as a triad, working together to educate that population and those individual um, patients. And when you, could, when you can create your own dispensary, you must be able to bring the costs of pharmacy way down from you know, these giant prices, what, what have you looked at the cost savings when you do have a full pharmacy? Yeah. Like, like I said, there's a, I mean, we can predict 17 to 20% reduction of what they're spending before and that's conservative, but yes, we can, we can, we can bring it right way down. And also really, you know, we've built software and, and so we call it proactive IQ is our population health software that we've built. Um, in training um, our, our care team and building out pathways. So when they go to prescribe medication, they can see, you know, is this in plan, is it not in plan? How much this is gonna cost the patient? How much is this gonna cost the employer? Are there alternatives? Are there, are, there, are there other things? And so constantly putting parameters in place to get that care team, to get those physicians thinking, you know, maybe a patient came in and saw a commercial and wants this pharmaceutical, but, there's, an, there's another great alternative. And because we have that relationship, because we've, we've developed a deep relationship, we can have a unique influence on, on educating the patient to say, hey, let's try this first. And, 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 and let's go from there. All right. Well, so what are you most excited about when you meet a new employer? Do, do you, have a, you must have a very high closing rate because 
it seems like America is migrating to these plans. We have, by my count of just people on this show, John, 30 million people are now in these types of plans, these subscription per member per month plans, they're direct contracted. And they're all different flavors, but most of them seem to be growing so fast that, um, and I don't think really the, the world has known about it because there's knows about it because there's no association. There's no books about it. You don't see many articles. There's very little uh, academic research other than your internal research that you're doing that is uh, certified by the Validation Institute. But there's very little um, work being done to actually sit down at a table with all of these folks and talk about an association. I think that might be the next step for us. No, I tell you, Ron, we are in an exciting time across the board from an employer perspective. Um, the pandemic was hard, COVID was hard, but let me tell you, it, it accelerated so many fronts. It accelerated virtual care and the need for that and the openness to that. It, it accelerated conversations that I had been trying to have for decades, in my, virtually my whole career, um, to think about value-based care. Employers are embracing it in a way that I have not seen. Hospitals are, are, are embracing it. And then independent physicians. And so um, I'm very active in, in the direct primary care space. And um, I, I want to see, to see this space grow and grow and grow. And I've seen the direct primary care movement um, just continue to explode. And so you do have the large direct primary care players that you know, work in the, in the employer arena. I would say we are like that, Everside, Premise. You have those groups, even groups on the MA side, but even individual Doctors, I, I've seen, there's probably nearly, we're approaching close to 2,000 independent doctors who have converted into a direct primary care um, type model. And, and that continues to grow. When I talk with you know family practice residents or internal medicine residents, this is the number one question. How do I get in direct primary care? How do I you know, think about value and not having to be on the hamster wheel of RVUs? Look, I love for the doctor that there's no burnout in this population you're talking about. These 2,000 docs have the happiest conventions I've ever seen in my life. There's no burnout. There's no suicide ideation. And I'm going to assume it's the same for your 100 docs and uh, providers. And I'm also going to assume it's the same for Everside and Paladin and all the others that are, I'm sorry, Everside and all the others that are in this game. Um, let's, let's talk about virtual. I just had on my show Babylon Health. And I've had uh, Medici on my show, and they are a virtual only model. Um, their doctor to patient ratio is one to 3,000 because they're not offering, when, in Medici's case, employers, they're not offering you know, bricks and mortar. Um, but in Babylon's Health, which is a Medicare population and really a capitation model, they're a one to 18,000 ratio of docs per, uh, per patient. So again, it, each model has its virtuals, but how do you feel about uh, the coming on of artificial intelligence as a decision maker for docs and as a, I guess, EHR data entry for docs? Yeah, well, our patient promise is we're only and always about our patients and our clients, and we promise to always fight for their greatest good. And part of fighting for the patient's greatest good is looking for ways to continually better serve them, to, to look for ways. Our job is to continue to innovate by continuing to improve. And so I am thrilled and I'm excited to see more and more technology. Just like I said, you know, COVID, it, it was tough. It was tough nationally and, 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 and globally, but um, it certainly accelerated a lot of innovation and a lot of um, openness to using virtual care and also other technologies, AI and, and other items. And so I'm, I'm certainly excited and, it, and, it's, and it's definitely a vital part of what we do. 
um, you know, our job is to be nimble and, and to meet the patient where they're at. And, and virtual is, is a great way to do that. Virtual services, leveraging RPM services, working with our, our specialty partners. And so when we're working with, with the specialist, um, you know, how do, how, do we, um, how do we come together? I'll tell you one more quick story. So what we saw in COVID, we had a lot of patients that were comfortable coming into the primary care setting because, you know, you know in primary, in direct primary care, we keep low volume. They're not waiting in the waiting room so they can, you know, they felt safer. But what we were seeing is a lot of our patients were saying, well, I'm not going to the specialist. I'm just not going to go to the hospital. Or, but they still, there were patients that were, that were ill that still needed to see their oncologist or still needed to be seen by a, a different specialist. And so what we did with our hospital relationships is we, we provided virtual care inside our setting where you had your family physician sitting right next to the patient and their and then you would beam in that oncologist and having an open conversation right there and, and help still give them the care that they need in, in a virtual environment. And so again, it's being nimble and being creative on how do we make sure our patients um, get the care that they need. Hey, John, how do folks reach out to you if they want to uh, send you a resume if they're a doctor or if they're an employer and they want to talk to you? Yeah, so proactive.md. So that's proactive.md and on, on the career side that we have um, a career page. And then my email is jcollier, that's J-C-O-L-L-I-E-R at proactive.md. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Great. Um, and if you could fly a banner over America, what would that banner say? Primary care changes lives. Good message. John, thanks for your time. And we'll look forward to keep, keeping up with you and watching your growth. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.